Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies. Visit sidley.com aviation. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Scott McCartney, and I'm here with Ben Baldanza to talk about airplanes and the people who fly them. We'll talk to Jeff Hunt, Senior Vice President of Engineering and Technology at Pratt & Whitney, about the engines that power many of those airplanes. And we think we're in for an interesting conversation on engineering challenges and what's ahead in engine technology. It's fascinating stuff. But first, Ben, let's get to some of the news of the week, which is plenty fascinating all on its own. Thanks, Scott. I hope it's been a good week for you. You know, we had a big discussion in our last episode about the spate of close calls that, at least we figured, raised alarm about complacency. And that was before we got the news that a United 777 plunged at a rapid pace to within 800 feet of the Pacific Ocean after taking off from Maui. The acting FAA had Billy Nolan announced that he's forming a safety review team and he plans to hold a safety summit next month. The NTSB is investing the U.S. close calls at JFK, Austin, Texas, and Maui. There's a lot of big issues to look into, Scott. I think that's right, Ben. We have the safest air travel system in the world, and we have spread safe flying practices all over the world. But you have to stay on your toes and continually learn. I'm glad these reviews are underway. I do wish we had a long-term FAA administrator. Congress and the Biden administration are both quick to point fingers at airlines, but they control that post, and it's critical. We need an FAA administrator fast. Someone with a five-year appointment can do a lot more than an interim. Speaking of long-term plans, the other big news of the week was a giant order of 470 Boeing and Airbus jets by Air India. The order, which included both single-aisle and wide-body planes, was worth about $100 billion at list prices. Airlines don't pay list prices, and some of those planes may never get built if things don't go right for Air India. But it's a big deal in aviation, 220 airplanes from Boeing and 250 from Airbus. The Tata Group, which has had a lot of success in other industries, took control of Air India a year ago and is overhauling the flag carrier. And aviation is booming in India, where the government said it plans to build 80 new airports over the next five years. The order was seen as a sign of strength in the air travel market, which has roared back after the pandemic in many parts of the world. Business travel is still about 80% of what it once was, but leisure travel and blended leisure trips have soared. People have a deep desire to travel, and the Air India order was seen as more confirmation of that. But Ben, we know the history. Airlines often order planes during boom times, and then they get delivered when times are tough. That makes things worse, more capacity when there's less demand. It's happened time and time again in this business. 
Ben, I know you know the Indian aviation market well. What do you think? Good deal or risky deal for Air India and for Boeing and Airbus? Well, for Air India, I'd say necessary deal. For Airbus and Boeing, we're going to have to see how many they actually pay for and deliver. You know, Air India, when Tata Group bought them, was a carrier with very high costs and a very, very old fleet. They've obviously been around for a long time. They also own or own partly another airline in India called Vistara and have a majority interest in AirAsia India. So when you think about where these planes are going to go, they may end up getting rid of some of those brand names, but it's all of that that is really part of the Air India network now. And new airplanes are going to help that company in a lot of ways. In the long haul markets, whether or not Delhi can in some ways or at some point compete really effectively with the Middle East hubs like Dubai or Abu Dhabi is something they want to make do. And geographically, it could work that way if they can make it work right and have the right kind of infrastructure. Domestically, I think it's going to be much more tough for them, Scott. The biggest airline in India right now is called Indigo. They're a low-cost carrier with very low costs, and they keep the fares in India very low. And importantly, they have about a 55% market share of the domestic market. So if Air India wants to be competitive in the broad domestic Indian market, including if any of those 80 airports get built, and I'm sure a lot of them will, I'm not sure if it's going to be 80, right? If the question is they're going to have to go up against a very strong, low-cost competitor, and with their history of sort of legacy labor and legacy business model, are they able to do that? So the new planes are a good first step. It'll be interesting to me whether the Tata Group is willing to make the other changes that they're going to have to make in the way the airline competes to be competitive both in the domestic Indian market, which is growing like a weed, and whether they compete long-term with the Middle Eastern and European hubs that today depend a lot on carrying people to and from India. Hmm. It's fascinating. It really is. And Ben, another fascinating low-cost carrier news item came forward this week when JetBlue announced uh, that if its deal with Spirit goes through, it will expand rapidly in South Florida. Uh, JetBlue said that Fort Lauderdale would become the biggest single station in its system with about 250 flights. There would be flights to 30 markets that today aren't served by Spirit or JetBlue. So a big incentive to get the deal improved, it would seem. I, our listeners know you can't talk about it, Ben, uh, but I sure can. I think this deal is really important for competition in the United States. We have four large carriers that need more competition, and a fifth credible carrier will come out of this merger one way or another. I think it's important that that fifth credible competitor have good service 
and offer uh, a legitimate alternative to travelers. This was backed up uh, years ago by an MIT study that, that found that in many cases, big airlines will ignore ULCC competition, ultra low cost carriers, or just uh, address it with uh, basic economy fares, but not really change what the prices that most people end up paying. That's not true for JetBlue. Offering a decent product and good service at a reasonable fare, that's the kind of competition that the big airlines, and I'm including Southwest in that, that's the kind of competition they really need. I, I think this is a crucial moment for airline competition in the country. And I really do hope uh, that uh, the judge looking at this um, will see that. Uh, one, one way you can look at this is JetBlue's Mint business class cabin, which continues to shake up transcontinental markets. People love it. You get business class cross country at a reasonable price, good service. Uh, it has brought down transcontinental business class fares significantly. That's not something Frontier's ever going to do. But I think for many travelers, they not only appreciate Mint, they appreciate how it's brought down uh, prices for nice seats on other airlines as well. So we'll see. It seems like we're getting close to a decision from, from the judge, and, and we'll see how it comes out. But I hope there's been a lot of talk about um, we need the lowest fares possible. I think this is a case where uh, we would all be better off with not the lowest fare possible, but low fare, good quality service. That's what most travelers want. Airlines Confidential appreciates the support of our great sponsors who bring you this podcast all year long. We especially want to thank Pratt & Whitney, both for the sponsorship and for making Jeff Hunt available for us today to talk about engines. Pratt & Whitney is a world leader in aircraft and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is driving the next generation of more sustainable travel. Its revolutionary geared turbofan architecture is allowing airlines and airports to open new routes and fly more people farther with less fuel and much lower noise. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And Ben, I want to mention an exciting event that we'll be participating in this spring, Aviation Festival Americas 2023 which will be May 16th and 17th in Miami Beach. We'll be on stage on the morning of the 17th recording the podcast with the audience and a very special guest. And Airlines Confidential listeners will get a special discount. Just go to airlinesconfidential.com and click on the banner and use AC50 to save 50% on your registration. This is the 15th year for the Aviation Festival Americas event, and Ben and I have both been to several in the past. It's always a great group of industry leaders and excellent, informative, topical sessions. We'd love to meet listeners in Miami, so take advantage of that 50% discount and come see us. We are delighted to have with us today Jeff Hunt, Jeff's Senior Vice President Engineering at Pratt & Whitney. And I think it's a great time to be talking about engine design, engine products, uh, the future of engines on airplanes, as there are so many issues out there 
with airlines looking for answers from engine makers. Jeff, 2022 was a very busy year for Pratt & Whitney. Looking back, what stands out to you as particularly noteworthy? Yeah, hey, Scott, and yeah, glad to be on the podcast uh, here. When we look at 22, I, I think about it as a time of recovery for us. You know, we we went, uh, as uh, the whole world did, uh, through some pretty tough times in, uh, in 2020 as the pandemic uh, struck. And, and clearly the airline business, you know, you see uh, RPKs down 95% and uh, the sort of impacts that that, that has on uh, on the industry really put us 2020, 2021 in, uh, in a sort of a dealing with the situation mode. Whereas in 22, we started to see the, the recovery coming in and across our portfolio, which stretches from you know, the general aviation sector through military into the, the large uh, category transport uh, sector, uh, we saw a general pickup towards a full recovery through through 22. So that was the, the hallmark. And if you look at our, at our fleets, firstly, you know, I get turbofan product, which, you know, we'll maybe talk a little bit more about, really saw a big pickup. Even in the pandemic, that was a product that kept, uh, was perhaps the last to be pulled out of service and the first to come back into service. But we put uh, over 15 million hours or we passed the 50 million hour flight uh, mark on that product so that was a, a a big deal you know we start to see maturity and, uh, and and general usage on the gtf then across the balance of our fleet you know we have a very substantial b2500 fleet still in still in service 26 7, engines out there so we hit around 265 million flight hours um cumulative on on that product so really the uh, the workhorse in in the industry there we saw a 112 inch fleet come back that was a that was a big deal you know we uh, we had a um some challenges on that fleet uh, sort of going back 18 uh, 18 months or, or so a lot of really good work by the engineering team to bring that product uh, back online and i think that was uh, well received by 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 customers and then, of course, on the uh, on the business jet side, even our uh, the Gulfstream G four hundred joined the five hundred and the six hundred in service with our eight hundred series engines. And in the uh, in the military side of the business, we had our one thousandth F one thirty five delivery, and some of our other fighter engines. The F twenty two was uh, celebrated its twenty fifth uh, anniversary. The F-15, it's 50th anniversary. So, you know, pedigree in that fleet was strong. So, say, a big sort of rebound with a very broad portfolio that we we looked at. And then the other thing that I I really thought was good in, in 22 was being able to bring our workforce um, back, really step that back up. So, as with many people in the industry, we had to take some pretty severe measures. Two or three years ago, we took about 30% out of some of our investments that equated to uh, a fairly significant turn down in headcount. And last year, we spent a lot of time out recruiting some really top talent in the in the industry. We pulled on about 500 new engineers um, in, in the course of the year. 
and the, in a very tight job market that was uh, that was something we had to work pretty hard at but were really happy with how that uh, that played out so so if you like recovery i'd say was the uh, name of the game in 22 uh-huh and as you go through the commercial engines um just for all of our listeners the the V2500 is is the workhorse for A320 right yep. and, and tell us uh, the 112 inch engine you mentioned that's that's wide body stuff yeah. right and yeah and then and then geared turbofan that's that's the new product that's on several airplanes and and that's uh really what has distinguished um uh Pratt's technology right yeah that's right the uh so the geared turbofan we we launched that uh, back in uh, the about a decade or so back in uh, in flight test with uh, Bombardier at that time on the C series, which uh, you know subsequently moved across to Airbus as the A220, uh, the A320 Neo program, the Embraer um, 195 program, and it was you know the uh, the Mitsubishi MRJ. And the uh, the MC twenty one it had positions on both of those aircraft. Though obviously for various reasons, those two programs are, are not continuing at this point. Um, but but nonetheless, between the A two twenty, the three twenty Neo, and the Embraer one ninety five, strong adoption of that geared turbofan technology certainly. And and tell us um, real quick. I, I've always been curious about this. When we say geared turbofan, it's a it's an engine literally with gears, much like your your car transmission. Yeah, so so that's a it's an interesting question. It, it, so the history of the uh, the the jet engine has largely been one of compromise for the last seventy years. You know, the basics of um, of how a, the fan works on the front of the engine is that it wants to go it wants to be big and it wants to be slow you know once you get the the tips of the uh, fan approaching um, sonic conditions you get a lot of losses and so on so you want that fan to move slow and move a lot of air and conversely the turbine that drives it you really want to be compact and fast it, that that's where its uh, design point uh, wants to be for most efficient operation. And the problem we have is the two things are attached by a common shaft um, on legacy uh, products. So you're always, the fan's going kind of faster than it wants to and the turbine's going slower than it wants to. And so what the gear does is it, it puts, literally it uh, puts a gear in the middle of that shaft and gives you about a three to one gear ratio between the two. So now your fan can go three times slower than the turbine and both can operate at their peak efficiencies, which is why it's such a big deal in terms of driving efficiency into the, uh, into the uh, product. That's fascinating. Thanks. Well, that's engineering for dummies like me. <laughs> and it actually made a lot of sense. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> you know, as you look forward to your business in 2023, what do you think are going to be the most critical issues for your commercial engines, your military engines, and your substantial Canada business too? Yeah, that's a uh, good question. Well, I said, you know, I talked, um, I talked about 22 being recovery. I think 23, there's a, is an investment, 
year for us. I'll say before I get into the product, maybe touch around some of the some of the the, the facilities that we're going to see coming online and so on, because as we really look to the future here. So just last November, I was uh, with some of my colleagues down in Asheville, North Carolina, opening a a 1.2 million square foot turbine blade airfoil facility. That's going to be a real opening into the advanced casting of airfoils uh, for us. So we're looking forward uh, to that. At the same time, and I'll maybe touch on this later, the the CMC uh, facility that we've opened, the ceramic matrix composites, a high temperature material facility we we, uh, opened in Carlsbad, California, was another big investment. And then just last week I was in India we inaugurated an engineering center in uh, in Bangalore that's going to work in conjunction with our facilities in the US, our engineers in Canada, Puerto Rico, Poland, to bring a much more global engineering network. So I, I think that move into some of these investments is something we're going to see more in, in 23. On the product side, perhaps the, the main uh, large commercial um, investment we're making right now is what we call the, the, the GTF Advantage. Now, that's the next step in this geared turbofan journey, which, you know, we see the geared turbofan as the basic architectural technology that uh, that sets us up for the future, sustainability, and, and, and so forth. And this next step, the advantage, as we call it, is targeted at the A320neo, in particular, at the uh, sort of the 321 end of that uh, that market, it's got about four to eight percent more thrust, and an additional one percent of, of fuel efficiency. Just for reference, the geared turbofan itself brought about a sixteen percent fuel efficiency benefit over legacy products. This ups the game by another percentage point, and it, it, we got the thing to run quite a bit cooler as well. So you get better on wing. Um, durability that that product's uh on track to be available for customers in the 2024 time frame we've got about 2800 hours of running on the development program it's about 8200 cycles a lot of which is focused on durability and uh, and searching out those uh those problems that you can have with a new engine coming in so a very rigorous program that uh, throughout 23 we're really going to be putting that engine through its paces uh, in our development stands. Um, as you look out, um, you know a little uh, a little broader into the, the the military side of the the house. A lot of discussion on the F one thirty five and uh, how that engine is going to be um, upgraded for the uh, what they call the Block four version of the of the aircraft. We have a fairly um, significant program of work we're embarking on to upgrade the core engine to give it more capability so that that's gonna keep us uh keep us engaged and busy over the uh over the coming years to to really we we just want to get uh, the best product we can for the warfighter uh, going forward to match the aircraft uh, capabilities so that's a that's certainly a uh, a significant um deal in that sense and then i think when you look across at uh, at Canada, 
a couple of uh, important things. The, the last year um, on the ATR, the regional turboprops, we put the uh, the new what we call the 127 XT into service. That was a, a an important step in fuel burn. It was about a three percent better fuel burn, but substantial improvement in um, in durability and uh, and life on wing. Um, looking to 23 we're really now pivoting into a lot of focus on the sustainability roadmap you know when you look at climate change technologies um, while the most important market sector is going to be large transport category aircraft you know for reference probably 80 percent of aviation global emissions come from journeys of a thousand miles or more so that that really tells you you've got to be looking at the single aisle and the um, and the wide body market. Nonetheless, in the general aviation and regional markets, the technologies are likely to show up first. So what you see is you've got to get to the, to the large aircraft, but probably the Canada markets are the ones that will see things like hybrid electric uh, and other technologies start to come in. So in, um, in 23, some big programs in Canada focused on some of these next generation uh, technologies around climate change. That's fascinating. From your seat atop the engineering organization at Pratt, what's changing with respect to aviation engineering itself? Yeah, that's a, uh, it's, a, it's, a it's an interesting time. So I've been, I've been doing this quite a long time. I, uh, I think I'm 38 years um, this year. So I go back to the days before computer-aided design and so on, and have watched those changes um, come in. So some things have never changed. The starting point when you're designing engines, and aircraft for that matter, is, is safety and reliability. You know, that's, that's table stakes that we have to work every day to make sure that the, you know, frankly, the, the excellent safety record in the industry is always maintained or improved. From, from where we are today. So you start there. And the other things that haven't changed are a relentless focus on performance and efficiency. You know, we, we often point to the fact that over, let's say the last seven decades of jet engines, we've improved the efficiency of the machines by about a percent or the, the fuel burn of the machines by about a percent every year that's just sort of the average push and we continue driving those efficiency improvements and the other thing that hasn't changed is the focus on life cycle cost you know, driving down your product costs driving down your, your maintenance repair and overhaul costs and trying to make the product as as economic for our customers as, as we can so those stay the same what what we've seen really changing is Firstly, sustainability. Uh, we've always had a focus on emissions, but the imperatives of climate change and the role aviation has to play in that space. I'd say the last five years have really become a critical design criteria and uh, part of our thought process. It, and what does that mean? It means things like sustainable aviation fuels, become critical, driving really significant uh, um, 
changes in efficiency. Not just one percent a year probably isn't good enough any anymore. And just by you know going back to the gear turbofan, since that went into service in 2016, we've saved a billion gallons of fuel compared compared to had we it not gone in and legacy engines been powering those those aircraft. That's you know 10 million tons of carbon dioxide not emitted. So really we we think very much in in those terms and so of course as our roadmaps go forward they become much more biased to how we address climate change and the people we employ become much more focused on that so that's one big change the other um big change that i've seen in the last five years is the the influence of data and the digital thread on, on how we work. And it's it's amazing how much that has moved just in the last handful of years, right through the value stream of the product. And in turn, what that means is the people we employ, the disciplines that we actually use in the industry have evolved somewhat. I just, in the last couple of years, um, we in engineering organize around disciplines and we have traditional you know, structures, engineering, aerothermal engineering and uh, material science and these sorts of things, which are fundamental to what we do. But now I have a data science and digital tools discipline that, you know, I wouldn't have had five years ago. It's so important to how we uh, how we operate. So I think that that's been a big uh, shift in how uh, how the organization starts to think. And I think that's going to continue. And if I can, while we're talking about sustainability, um, it is such a big issue in the industry. Both Airbus and Boeing have said they're not going to have new airplanes uh, for at least 10, 12 years, maybe more, uh, 15 years or so. And I think a lot of that is driven by engine technology. I, I know Pratt's working on things like a hydrogen-powered engine. But I'm just curious, from, from your perspective, why is it going to take so long, um, uh, and, and is that time frame reasonable to think there will be something significantly different fifteen years from now? Yeah, that's a uh, that's interesting, isn't it? So, you know, first off, I would say you've got to sort of think a little bit about how long it takes from once you establish a mature technology to actually putting an aircraft into passenger carrying services is, is, you know, is, is quite a long time. By the time you've run an engine design certification program, a flight certification program, that elapsed time is gonna be, I don't know, six, seven years, depending where you start to count from. So if you were gonna pick the middle of the decade, you step that back and you need to have mature technologies in your hand in a you know three or four years from today to to sort of meet that so if you think about it in that sense i need to be able to just project forward three or four years i need to have demonstrated um mature technologies ready to go in into designs and to to be economic you know the you've got to have double digit improvements in the uh, the engine capability 
to satisfy the launch criteria for a, for an aircraft. So some pretty significant technology steps to be matured and three or four years is not a lot of time to do that. Now, we're not starting from scratch here, but, but it takes quite a long time to mature those to a point where in particular, when you have, um, you know, folks like Airbus and Boeing talking about this, they are looking to maybe replace products that have been in service for decades and are highly mature and highly dependable and being delivered at significant rates. So, you know, you've got to be able to have a product that's so ready to go that it can cut in to high volume production without necessarily uh, having any degradation in safety and reliability without having that. So just that maturation process, I think, is, is really what takes time um, to be ready. So that's uh, that's one thing. Now, what what is going to be in those products? Certainly, we are going to be working on efficiency. Propulsive efficiency is all going to be how big can we get the fans um, to be? Um, how light can we get the fans? How efficient uh, can we get those the fans, the front end of the engine, and then how small, how high temperature, and how high pressure can we make the core engines? That's sort of the two levers that drive um, basic efficiency. To get small, high temperature cores, it's materials. I talked about ceramics, matrix, composites, but but other sorts of coatings and so on are going to be technologies that have to develop in order to get those efficiencies. So that's one piece of it. Electric, uh, hybrid electric propulsion is another piece um, that goes in. As you, in the smaller end um, of, the, of the market, say the regional turboprop, I think there's a lot of great potential for, um, for a hybrid electric solution. We have a program running um, in Canada right now. It's a, um, sponsored by the government of Quebec and uh, the Canadian government, partnered with de Havilland um, and Collins, another RTX company, and us, where we are, we, we just ran a hybrid electric engine that's got a one megawatt motor paired with a one megawatt equivalent thermal engine run through a gearbox. So if you like, it's a 50-50 kerosene burning and electric um, engine that's targeted a 30% improvement in fuel consumption, which is um, probably the biggest number I've ever said when I've talked about this over the decades. That's a huge um, improvement that we're, uh, we're looking to demonstrate. That engine ran last year. It's going to flight test in 2024. And, uh, and we're really excited about the opportunity that that brings us hybrid electric in the regional turboprop um, space. Now, when you move that into the geared turbofan or the you know the large commercial engine space, you're not going to see the same sort of um, improvements. You're going to see efficiency improvements. A one megawatt motor on a single aisle engine is about a five percent boost rather than a 50% boost. So it, it's probably going to allow us to maybe shrink the engine a little bit and use some augmentation to get more efficiency. Um, but it would be part of a package of uh, efficiency improvements rather than 
the big shift that you see in the smaller end uh, markets, at least at this at, at this stage. Jeff, this has been terrific. Before you go, I'd like you to address one more issue that seems to be affecting the whole commercial industry. A number of airlines have whined about not being able to get new aircraft in 2023 at the rate they were hoping. And they're hearing from Boeing and Airbus that they just can't deliver at that rate. What is the role that you think the engine manufacturers are playing in this? And are you having the kind of struggles that Boeing and Airbus are? Yeah, I, so here's where, uh, where I think we've seen some of these challenges. The supply chain in general, as we've come back from, from the pandemic, we have seen a real challenge in some areas of either just basic material flow. And, the, you know, there was the Ukraine-Russia situation in, has had some impact there, but I think we've been able to work around that. You know, obviously, flow of things like titanium into some into some parts of the supply chain that have been challenging as the supply chains have to rebalance. But I think, I think more so the skills within the supply chain that had to um, move out of the industry during the pandemic have been harder to bring back in. And we've, we've seen in things like structural castings, which is a, uh, you know, a, an important fundamental part of an engine, you know, the, the casings and so on that uh, the engines uh, founded on to, to a large degree in the design, which come from a very specialized supply chain, have really struggled to come back at the volumes. And it's been, you know, we had a case with one supplier where the, the welders who work on those structural castings, frankly, moved out of the industry to go to work in other areas and did not come back as the uh, thing picked up. And it takes six months to, to qualify one of these specialized welders. And this, this is just an example, but in that sort of case, while you're training up the workforce and you're getting yourself back up to speed, the delivery of those parts is, uh, is restricted. I think we're seeing it pick back up. Things are starting to stabilize, um, but that was a real challenge for us in 22. And, you know, we're recovering uh, through going into 23. And I think that's, at least from the engine perspective, I can't really talk to the, um, to the airframers, but those are the sort of issues that we've, uh, we've had to work through to some degree. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, for coming on the show, giving us this inside view of what's happening at Pratt & Whitney. And we appreciate all you've taught us. I've learned a lot, and I think our listeners did too. Very good. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. We'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential, and thanks again to Jeff for some really great insights. We want to thank our sponsor, Sidley Austin. Sidley Austin is the go-to law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. Sidley combines unmatched experience with top-tier capabilities 
across a vast global footprint. Visit sidley.com slash aviation for more information. Ben, a couple other news bits that I wanted to mention. Lufthansa, Europe's largest airline, had a tough week last week. The carrier grounded its fleet on Wednesday after a technology failure and then canceled most of its flights on Friday because of strikes at its main hubs, Frankfurt and Munich. It's probably a good thing that it's not a particularly busy travel time of the year. And Germany wasn't the only travel hiccup. New York's Kennedy Airport closed Terminal 1 on Thursday and all of Friday, quote, due to electrical issues. That's what the Port Authority said. Air New Zealand Flight 2 was more than halfway across the Pacific when it turned around and went back to Auckland. The Boeing 787 was more than eight hours into the 16-hour flight when it did the U-turn south of the Hawaiian Islands. If the airplane had diverted to another U.S. airport, it could have been on the ground out of service for several days, the airline said. When when I looked at the flight track of it, I was reminded of the uh, Braniff 747 that uh, turned around halfway in its trip um, because the airline filed for bankruptcy protection. This latest episode illustrates a fundamental travel lesson. When bad things happen, travelers can be massively inconvenienced. Okay, on to listener questions and comments. Lewis from Indiana says, hello guys, having Mike Swiatek on the show was a true inspiration for the disabled community. Smart guy. About the Colgan air crash, the real issue was stall recovery. And I still say the 1,500-hour rule is making airlines less safe. This is why we're having too many incidents. And Mike from Grapevine, Texas, also responded to the Colgan discussion we had. In response to your comments about Colgan, I want to add the point that, especially as we consider lowering barriers to entry, not everyone is cut out to be a pilot. And in the U.S., we do a very poor job of weeding out pilots that fail to meet the standards set at various milestones during their training. On the contrary, U.S. flight schools notoriously coddle, carry, prod, and drag pilots through the program as long as the checks keep cashing, Mike says, when what they should be doing is washing out candidates who prove they lack the aptitude to earn pilot certification. Mike lists several accidents attributed to poor flying skills, including Air France, Asiana in San Francisco, and the Atlas Air Crash near Houston. Mike adds, when all else fails, be able to fly the airplane. One hand-flown approach each year in the simulator isn't enough to be comfortable and competent in hand-flying. We owe it to ourselves to build a strong foundation in hand-flying airplanes and understanding how to correct the aircraft flight path and energy state by hand when all of the automation becomes a distraction. Ben, what do you think? Scott, I'd love to hear from our pilot listeners about whether they agree that the industry is not good at weeding out those who maybe aren't quite as competent as others. I'm not sure that I've seen that in terms of the airlines I've worked at. Generally, the trainers are quite strict on procedures and such, but I don't know that world in enough detail. And so if some of our listener pilots do, I'd love to have their view. In terms of 
the 1,500-hour rule, I agree that that has led to problems in the regional business. The problem is a quality versus quantity issue. It's a quantity goal, but doesn't assess the quality of the hours. You could literally be 1,500 hours piloting hot air balloons, and that would qualify you to have enough hours even though you certainly couldn't pass an airline check ride if all you've done is pilot the hot air balloon. But the point is towing banners, carrying skydivers, flying hot air balloons is not the same as flying in the airspace system, landing at LaGuardia, landing at O'Hare, you know, dealing with air traffic control ground stops and all the things that real pilots have to deal with all the time. So the idea that there's this somewhat arbitrary 1,500-hour quantity rule without looking as much at the quality of what's there is the problem of this. And I don't think I'm unique in thinking this. And hopefully the FAA and the industry is going to work together to find a better solution that certainly maybe ups it from what used to be 250 hours, but recognizes that not all flight hours are equal. I totally agree, Ben, on hours. Uh, you know, the point about weeding pilots out, it's its interesting. And I, too, I would love to hear from pilots. But we did see with, with Colgan that the, the captain of that flight had not only failed several check rides uh, as he did his training, um, but uh, got unsatisfactory ratings on several proficiency checks at Colgan and the answer was just send him off to more training or give him, uh, you know, some kind of update. Uh, he wasn't he wasn't grounded and um, probably should have been. I agree. And Scott, one more listener comment. This one from Steve from Baltimore. I just wanted to pass along my appreciation for your latest episodes. I've been listening to your podcast fairly regularly since its inception, and it has only improved as you have tweaked the format. I know that I am not alone in saying that Scott McCartney's edition has taken your episodes to a new level. I agree with Steve on that, Scott. <laughs> As you. a former pilot with AirTran, I instantly recognized Kevin Healy's name in the episode description and looked forward to hearing what he was doing now. I remember Kevin was well-liked among the rank-and-file employees as a member of the AirTran management team. He is regarded as a straight shooter, smart at the business, and a good communicator with the employees. I remember him taking questions at an employee Q&A and doing a fantastic job. I didn't expect to hear quite so much about AirTran history and some inside baseball about some of the decisions that were made back in the time during the episode. Those were great stories to hear for someone who was at the company at the time. Although I'm happily fine with Southwest now, I do miss that nimble AirTran culture that Kevin describes so well. Joe Leonard and his management team really made something out of nothing, and it was nice to let Kevin tell those stories. I look forward to many more episodes to come. Well, thank you, Steve, and thank you, Ben. Uh, I love being here with you. We are looking forward to many more episodes with plenty of inside baseball about airlines and travel. 
I do hope our discussions are enjoyed by all who love flying, the many people who work hard to make airlines run, and the many more people who buy the tickets that pay for the greatest, safest transportation system that is so important to our lives and our global economy. With that, we'll be back next week with another episode of Airlines Confidential. And don't forget about that 50% off deal at the Aviation Festival Americas. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.